Great news, everybody. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by the creator of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. He was a longtime journalist broadcasting two decades of foreign and domestic coverage with ABC and NBC News. He's now transitioned from food television to writing books. The new author of Food Americana, David Page. Let's get hungry. David Page, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have you joining me today. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. Absolutely. For everyone that's listening, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, some of your achievements? Well, my name is David Page. I am a food journalist. My uh, recent book is Food Americana, about how we created an American cuisine out of bits and pieces of the food ways of other countries and cultures. Before that, I created Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And before that, I was a hard news journalist. I traveled the world at one point for NBC, covering events in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. I walked through the Berlin Wall the night it opened. Uh, and I've been doing this a pretty long time. Is that kind of uh, where, where the love of experience different cuisine came from, was traveling overseas? Yeah, I um, never expected to get assigned overseas. I was probably as xenophobic as any American, uh, didn't think about it. And then I got a phone call one day from New York saying, would you have any interest in moving to London? And I said, "Uh, sure. Next thing I know, I'm based in London, followed by a posting in Frankfurt, followed by a posting in Budapest. And I'm experiencing foods from all sorts of other countries. And I realize that food, that's my dog, food (laughs) is the gateway to other cultures. So suddenly I find myself traveling all over Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, experiencing all kinds of foods. And I realize that a country's cuisine, or, or more realistically, a region of a country's cuisine, because they're so different, is the gateway into that country's culture. And it was from there that I um, developed a a, a very deep interest in foods. I, you know, and and food is the great social lubricant, too. It's, it's, um, It's the way to break down walls and and to to just sit and talk to someone uh by itself uh is 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 gonna bring you closer now there's close and there's close i mean uh yeah i had breakfast with yasser arafat but it was a table with 20 people at it so it's not like we did a lot of schmoozing uh on the other hand there was a hilarious incident Uh, this was back when the United States government still had him and the PLO listed as terrorists and the PLO would not 
acknowledge the existence of Israel, the best they would do is call it the Zionist entity. And it's like one in the morning and we're at this long table having breakfast, uh, which was uh, a required prelude to, to doing an interview with him. And the sound man, and it's always the sound man, suddenly reaches over to a basket of fruit and says aloud, oh, blood oranges. I haven't had one of these since I was last in Israel. And the entire table goes absolutely silent for what felt like an hour. It was probably 10 seconds. And then no one acknowledges what he has just said and conversation continues. (laughs) So uh, obviously every area has its own kind of cuisine. Um, America has kind of you know, patchworked ours together, it seems. Yes, there are many people who would argue there is no American cuisine. I vehemently disagree and make the case in this book. There is an American cuisine. It's one that we created out of various cuisines, uh, most of which came here with immigrants, some which are indigenous to Native Americans or to Mexican-Americans who were living in Mexico until the end of the Mexican-American War, and all of a sudden they found themselves living in the United States because the border moved south. Um, and, And what we have historically done is found a, quote, foreign food that had been brought here that we liked and immediately began changing it, either because um the ingredients of the origin country were not here as in the case of pizza when when four italians came here from southern italy from naples they wanted to recreate pizza but the wheat here has a different protein percentage than the wheat in southern italy the uh, ovens that they found in new york city were coal fired as opposed to the wood fires uh, wood fired ovens they knew from back home so the pizza couldn't be the same it, it, it became um, crunchier uh, because, uh, little known fact, pizza Napolitano, the most famous pizza that comes from that region, um, is, is not properly made by almost anyone making it in the U.S. because American tastes would not appreciate it. Real pizza Napolitano is, is loose, even soupy. And Americans don't like their pizza to be soupy. But, but, but as happened with so many different kinds of foods, we modified them to suit our taste. But, but also, all food ways um, evolve. In the country of origin for each item we have, food doesn't stay the same. Uh, you know, people talk especially people who drown when it rains because their noses are so high up in the air on the subject of food. People snobbly complain that uh, that Chinese food isn't authentic. Well, first of all, uh, there are multiple Chinese regional cuisines. Secondly, a tremendous amount of what's consumed in China that you would consider, quote, authentic, most Americans won't eat because the Chinese, as most countries on earth, believe in using every part of the animal, and most Americans are not big on duck blood or pig tendon. 
Uh, and thirdly, uh, Chinese food continues to evolve. One of the most popular dishes among young people in China today is scrambled eggs and tomatoes. That would not be seen as, quote, authentic by someone complaining about their General Cho's chicken. Now, General Cho's chicken is not served in China in the form we know. It actually was invented in Taiwan by an expatriate Chinese chef where it was far less sweet, um, far spicier, not gloppy like the version that, that we have come to know and love. But I'll be damned, you come home drunk, nothing better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, is there, I wonder, a version of we take Chinese food and mm -hmm. we make it Americanized is mm -hmm. there a version of that that then goes backwards? No, no. There are versions of foods that have gone international. American pizza, for example, the, the large chains have, have established outposts elsewhere in the world where the food is seen as American, not Italian. Um, Kentucky Fried Chicken has established outposts all over the world and has even become a Christmas Eve or Christmas Day tradition among many people in Japan. I don't know how that happened, but but it's truth. But uh, and some Americanized sushi is now available in Japan. I'm told it's possible to get a California roll, which which was invented here. But uh, it's going to be a cold day in hell before Americanized Chinese food is accepted in China. Now, having said that, there is a, a large move, large, there, there is a growing movement in the United States called Chinese 2.0, in which a young generation of chefs is trying to either replicate popular dishes, well, dishes that they think would be popular among Americans, and or the essence of Chinese flavors, tastes, textures in updated dishes that may bear more resemblance to what's served in China or may simply be paying homage to the flavors uh, in China. You don't see, uh, I mean, we like things sweet. There, there are many dishes that, that our Chinese American culture has, has turned sweet that even the antecedent of would be quite different in China because um, there would be, uh, at the very least, a balance of, of flavors like sweet and sour. I mean, sweet and sour soup over here isn't really sour, it's sweet. Um, we're, we're, big on, we're big on sweet. We definitely are, um, which kind of transitions to, uh, I mean, what we have very much popularized here, which is uh, fast food. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of fast food definitely seems very sweet. Mm -hmm. And salty. Yeah, and salty for sure. I mean, it's sweet, salt, and fat. We, we deep fry a lot of it. Yep. Um, so where where's the line? Where do you start calling something fast food, and where does it fall off of fast food? Um, well, it's an interesting question because there is a um, – growing sector of the burger business that's that's known as better burgers. It's places like Smash Burger or, or Five Guys 
who market that they are a step above fast food, that they're using better beef, that they're making your dishes by hand when you order them, nothing sitting there wrapped and waiting. However, they're now in and, and hence it takes longer to get a better burger than it takes to get a McDonald's burger. Uh, and they're, they're now encountering um, a conundrum, which is that one of the things the pandemic brought was an increasing reliance on drive-through as well as delivery and curb pickup. And I believe it's Five Guys that is actually gonna gonna try a drive-through, um, perhaps some of the others as well, which is really gonna blur the line. How quickly can they produce food? Will they start leaving food under a heat lamp? Um, for me, fast food is, well, before the pandemic, it was, uh, can you get it out of a window into your car? As I say, the lines are blurred, but it's it's food with no waiting time. It's food that's waiting for you, not vice versa. Right. Um, I know we have a, I believe they're probably local to Oregon, where I'm at, um, that is a Burger 2.0 mm-hmm. um, called Killer Burger. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've seen some pretty interesting things on the menu that have included like peanut butter and uh, extra pickles. Something like that. Well, uh, peanut and peanut butter burgers uh, are not completely unheard of. In my book, I, I focus on the Triple X Family Restaurant in West Lafayette, Indiana, which has been serving a peanut butter and bacon burger for for decades. The fact of the matter is, we look at peanut butter only as the sort of thing you, you have with jelly on a sandwich. In fact, peanut is a um, widely used flavor and ingredient in in many especially asian cuisines and uh, a peanut butter burger actually tastes pretty good if 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 you can get past your preconceptions in fact it's damn good yeah and i enjoy peanut butter at all hours of the day mm-hmm. um, it just was not the thing i expected for my burger so when i came oh. through i saw the menu and i'm like well, the, 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 the arti- I guess it's not artisanal if it's a chain. The gussied up burger has been with us for a long time and is one way that individual restaurants stand out. We do this to the burger. We do that to the burger um, at, at all levels. I mean, back in, I want to say 80 something, I should read my own book again. Uh, noted Michelin starred French chef Daniel Balloud uh, invented uh, what what he positioned as a hamburger you'd eat in France with a bottle of good red wine. And he filled it with, in addition to making fresh tomato compote and all sorts of uh, ingredients. He filled the burger with um, braised short ribs and foie gras. And at the time, he was selling it for $28, which the Guinness Book of World Records declared the most expensive burger in the world. He's still selling it, I think, for $38. But he he created it in part, he told me, um, because there had been a protest in France about McDonald's coming to a small town. And they'd actually tried to burn the place down. 
And he just thought that was ludicrous. You know, what's wrong with a McDonald's? So he did his own version of a hamburger. And that launched um, a wave of upscale hamburgers. It's it's rare to find a white tablecloth restaurant these days of any price range that doesn't offer a burger. You know, there were chefs who clearly uh, created idiotic burgers. Like there was one in Las Vegas that was $5,000 and it came with a stupidly expensive bottle of wine. That's obviously for the press release. But the concept of a a good burger is is now deeply woven into the fabric of our restaurants at all levels. Uh, at the same, the same token, have we started to see some other things that would probably traditionally be fast food items uh, climbing the the scale to be more gourmet? Uh, like what? Um, I was just trying to think of fast food in general. Yeah, well, uh, you've seen changes in the fast food world. You've seen an increasing reliance on the fried chicken sandwich, which, um, you know, back in 2019 and 2020, uh, there was this huge chicken sandwich war that was um, occasioned by Popeyes entering the battle against the... uh, longtime leader in that market niche, which was Chick-fil-A. And as a result, uh, everybody's boat rose. Uh, Chicken sandwiches became the hottest thing in fast food. They still are today. And as a country, you know, we now consume more chicken than beef, and that's not going to go in the other direction. But as Daniel Portal, uh, David Portolatin, one of the country's leading food industry analysts said to me, I said two things. One, he said, Americans like to try something new if they've had it before. So the fried chicken sandwich as, you know, an evolution of fried chicken made perfect sense. Number two, he said, you know, there there are a number of people who, who may contend that they eat chicken for health, but it's deep fried. Right. And that was kind of my next question is like, uh, is the chicken transition supposed to be the... Uh the healthier of our unhealthy foods? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that there are many people who would contend that chicken is healthier. I would guess without knowing any better that a plain beef hamburger that has not been deep fried is probably certainly no worse for you than a deep fried piece of chicken. But uh, I'll leave that to the nutritionists. Right. Um. And there's certainly, I don't know if it's still in the same surge, but um, it seems like every American loves fast food. Yeah. And look, one of the reasons is less culinary and more behavioral. We, we are an impatient society. We eat very quickly. Um, Way back in the 1800s, visitors from Europe were astonished at how quickly Americans eat. We want everything now. We want everything fast. We want immediate gratification. Secondarily, um, we're hooked on salt, fat, and sugar. Now, whether the fast food companies did that intentionally or we all simply fell into what for them is 
wonderful state of affairs. But the fact of the matter is, people love this kind of food. You, you can't discount that. And it, it's kind of the, the perfect storm where you have relatively cheap, all the things we want, and very fast that seem to, uh, you know, cause it to, to dominate the, the, the landscape. Yeah, but when you say cheap, I mean, there is, on the societal um, scale, this is, uh, in terms of health, regressive because a poor community, pe people with very little money, often turn to fast food, A, because they may be living in what's called a food desert, but B, because you can get something for a buck, uh, as opposed to going to whole paycheck and spending $3,000 on an organic chicken. That's an unfortunate reality. Now, fast food, by definition, doesn't have to be the worst thing on earth. I mean, as I said, a plain hamburger is one of the least deadly things on earth, except for the fact that it's made of beef. But I am far less personally um, concerned uh, about the health effects of beef versus fried chicken, as we as we discussed a few minutes ago. You know, obviously, we should all be eating a lot more vegetables and a lot less animal protein. And there is a movement in the country that's hip at the moment. I don't know if it's going to remain hip as people attempt to live on yam casseroles. But there, there is a, a movement afoot to uh, emphasize eating plant-based meals. Um. I wanted to loop back real quick. You said the term food desert, uh -huh. and it's something I've never heard before. Uh, it is a fact. A food desert is a usually um, impoverished area where supermarkets won't go, where you're basically reduced to corner stores, um, well, to corner stores right. as the only source of, of food because for whatever reason you're you're not going to find um a safeway or or, or an a and p if they still exist in that neighborhood uh it's it's a it's an unfortunate kind of redlining um as if any redlining was not the argument has traditionally been that impoverished areas are more crime ridden but um i look you, you ought to be there and you ought to be selling food Right. Yeah, that's one of those that's uh, the highest predictor of crime is poverty. And uh, well, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's a unfortunately self-fulfilling cycle on that. Um, but I'm I know I'm certainly not above uh, eating what you'd call really bad food for you. Well, it's not, you know, food, the consumption of food is far too tied with guilt these days. The In a perfect world, at the risk of being boring and, and repeating old adages, you can eat anything in moderation. I choose to think that a pint of Haagen-Dazs is moderation, but that's a personal <laughs> choice. If that wasn't a portion size, why are they, why are they making those containers? Right. 
Should, you shouldn't sell it in that size if you don't want to. That's right. That you should just sell Dixie cups. That is the same way I feel about donuts. They sell them by the dozen, so they Damn should be straight. by the dozen. Damn straight. <laughs> For my next book, I'm, I'm trying to connect with a, a, a donut bakery here in New Jersey that um, basically has taken the Chipotle model to donuts. You come in and you you point at stuff and you tell them everything you want in your donut, and then they make them for you fresh. I, I would spend a lot of money there. Yeah. So you had said uh, the plant-based movement is mm -hmm. kind of growing across the, the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, I certainly hadn't heard yam casserole. Well, uh, it is hard if you spent your entire life basing meals on animal protein to creatively come up with meals that are exciting and enticing that don't include any um there's a variety of pasta dishes obviously but when you get to the point of no meat of any kind in in a dinner it requires some creativity on the part of the chef to to keep people interested i mean there's been um, there's been a fair amount of negative press since 11 Madison Park reopened as um, an allegedly vegan restaurant, although they serve cream and honey um, at the end of the meal for, for your tea, which is technically not vegan. But anyway, they're not getting rave reviews, despite the fact that, you know, dinner for two is going to cost you between 700 and a thousand dollars. Uh, although I'm one of the few people on earth who wasn't really impressed with them when they were serving meat. So yeah, I don't know. Um, had a very disappointing meal there once. But, but the point is, there a lot of what goes on in, in plant-based cookery is an attempt to, to fake, to copy um, animal protein. You know, it's just like something. It's like fake bacon. Um, frankly, the, the cultures that have traditional diets that are um, much more plant-based than ours have traditionally eaten that way. You know, we're taking people and saying, well, I, I know that steak would be good, but you should have this instead. And uh, it's hard to, to change something as, as essential to us as what we eat. Right. And uh, it, it feels like the U.S. is kind of industrious enough and creative enough that we are trying every day to try and make, you know, vegan meat taste like actual meat. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wonder, I always wonder how long before we're there. Oh, I, good luck. I, I, I who knows? Um, the plant-based Look, look, the true virtue in, in vastly increasing our consumption of, of plants as opposed to animals is its benefit to the world. The, the factory farming, while on the one hand, I love to eat chicken, pork, beef. Factory farming is a very ugly thing when, when you think about it. And it is creating environmental havoc and that's a good reason to uh, to vastly increase our consumption of plant-based meals 
Uh, and it's good for us to eat more plants and and less flesh. I and there is you know the movement is growing in the United States, and you're seeing plant based options on menus all over the place because of um, what Rick Wetzel, the founder of Blaze Pizza, once explained to me as the reason that they have salads is to avoid the veto. Four or five people are going out to eat and they say, how about this place? And the one person in the crowd who's a vegan or a vegetarian says, can't do it. And I I truly believe that plant-based options are appearing on, on chain restaurant menus to forestall the veto. But for whatever reason they're there, I, I'd love to know how many impossible burgers um, Burger King is really selling. It's good PR. And, and there are people who want the impossible burger. But I think it's a long throw to get the average American to, to choose it on purpose. Right. Um, which kind of leads me into, you know, why certain dishes are becoming more popular and why certain dishes are becoming less popular. Is it a lot around that societal impact? Well, the best book ever written on screenwriting, pardon me, was written by William Goldman, who passed away a few years ago. He wrote uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He wrote All the President's Men. He was probably the top script doctor in Hollywood for many years. And in his book, he explains why certain movies get made and why others don't and why some succeed and why some fail. And Goldman's rule is no one knows anything. I can't tell you why a particular food is going to go up or down in popularity because it's unfathomable. I mean, I, I think it's, I can say this. I believe that as a society, Americans are becoming slightly more adventurous in what they're willing to eat. Uh, we're, we're seeing items like uh, birria de res, a, a um, Mexican, spicy Mexican beef stew, which was not part of the original cuisine of northern Mexico that, it, that, that was turned into Mexican-American food, because uh, most birria began in central Mexico, and it, it moved up to Tijuana after Mexican-American cuisine had had taken hold. Anyway, it's a regional Mexican cuisine. It has now crossed the border. Uh, a few years ago, uh, it was all the thing in Southern California. It's now become all the thing on the East Coast as well. So it, it requires, um, requires an openness to something new. Now, how scary is a taco? Not that scary. Will Birria de Reis become part of the umbrella of Mexican-American cuisine, maybe? Or it could be a fad of the moment and go away. There are other cuisines that can't break through entirely. Um, You know, as popular as Vietnamese food is in certain places, and certainly among, quote, foodies, unquote, uh, it, it has never been able to attain the widespread acceptance or, or public desire for it that makes it, in my mind, part of American cuisine. And if anything looks like it should break through, the banh mi should break through, but but it hasn't. 
um, chefs and food writers have been pushing Peruvian cuisine for years now as something that, that should become widespread in America. And Peruvian cuisine is terrific. On the other hand, the Peruvian national dish, anticulchos, is grilled beef heart. And I don't think the average American is, is going to be thrilled by um, seeing that on the menu. Um, I, I think it's a shame that the country as a whole is, is, thinks that awful is awful. How is that for a terrible expression? Uh, I mean, if we would just stretch, I was taken to a, a food hall in Queens in New York, in the neighborhood I was born in, Flushing, which when I was born 66 years ago was, was mostly Jewish, maybe some Italian, now it's mostly Chinese or other Asian immigrants. And this food hall, you know, for, for decades, Chinese food in America has been made by mostly immigrants serving it, making it for Anglos, okay? Now there are enough Chinese living in America, certainly in places like Flushing or the Valley in California, that you can make money running a restaurant intended to serve people who were born in China. Hence, the food at this food hall, and it was, this was obviously pre-COVID, um, was incredible. The, 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 the crowd was, was, there were very few um, non-Chinese in, in, in the crowd. And the dishes available, it was a series of stalls, the dishes available ranged from the familiar hand-pulled noodles and dumplings to something called dry pot, which is a combination, a very spicy combination of whatever ingredients you choose. And the ingredients included things like tendon um, and artery and uh, all kinds of offal. And uh, as a side dish, I got a wonderful disc of duck blood, which if you didn't know what it was, was kind of like a sort of metallic tasting liverwurst. The food was fantastic. I, I don't see the average American willing to to go there, but it's incredible food. It's remarkable. Yeah, sounds, I mean, I'd try it. I'll try it. Yeah, I mean, it's like, look, when I was a kid, my, my, um, immigrant Jewish grandmother was serving me something that I thought was wonderful. So I asked her what it was and she told me it was brains and I never ate it again. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just don't want to know. Yeah. Um, I know I had one of those kind of an odd dietary cause I grew up in a very rural area. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was used to eating venison forever. And so the first time I went somewhere and I had the same dish I had at home, and it had beef. I was like, why does this taste really strange? The thing with venison is um, it, it, there's venison and there's venison. Um, the venison that I used to have in Austria, which had been farm raised, was phenomenal. The venison that I would be served in Minnesota when I lived there and it had been killed by the guy serving it to me when he went out hunting, um, I didn't have the energy to keep chewing. I mean, the thing they always tell you, it's very scary when you walk into someone's house and you're going to have venison and you say, I've had it in the, 
in the slow cooker all day. I have a secret to making it tender. And no, they don't. Yeah. Um, it's definitely one of those that I know that I've been told, like, they have to add fat to it to process it because it otherwise is just, well, it's, it, it it's, won't even yeah, hold it together. The, well, the venison I used to have in, in Salzburg uh, would be served with um, a compote of wild cherries. And it was extraordinary. And on the table to, to um, put on your bread would be a crock of goose fat. Phenomenal. Your heart stops, but it's incredible. Yeah, well, that sounds like something I want to try. Oh, yeah. And on top of that, it seems like there is a, a trend in at least slowly. I see it, it coming up. Um, in the the American uh, cuisine that is getting spicier. Well, there's some. I look the. Uh, I'd like stock and sriracha. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's more spicy. Um, I'd like to think there's more interest. Although interestingly enough, as as I grow older, I lose. I've lost a lot of interest in eating things just because they set my mouth on fire. There's got to be that balance between spice and flavor. Right. Yeah, I uh, I just know I drive past signs uh, on the way to work that are like, oh, the flamethrower burger or order this with ghost pepper sauce. Yeah, I, I, I get I mean, look, Nashville hot chicken is um, at the risk of, of using the word is the hottest thing in the country right now. Yeah. And true nashville hot chicken will blow your brains out um the the nashville hot chicken you get at wendy's i think it is that won't blow your brains out uh and you know it's it gets down to uh regional foods in the united states have suddenly become non-regional you can get any kind of barbecue anywhere now it doesn't mean it's a good version of that kind of barbecue, but you can get it anywhere. I spoke with a guy who, along with his wife, after a trip to Nashville, when they first discovered hot chicken, they um, they opened a hot chicken store in Columbus, Ohio. And now they're up to like six, one of them's in Cleveland. And he admitted, you know, it was a tough road to hoe to stay intrinsically, basically true to the recipe, but tone it down enough that someone in Columbus, Ohio would buy it. Yeah. Um, which is, <laughs> I mean, I am, uh, I'm big on spicy and I enjoy that. So I like, I like the hope in my heart that it's, it's coming around, but, uh, time will tell. Right. Well, do you, you guys have Nashville hot chicken in Oregon? Not that I know of. Really? Because there's a chain down in L.A. I realize it's 3,200 <laughs> miles away, but uh, I would assume it's going to climb the West Coast and get to you eventually. But are you in Portland? Where are you in Oregon? Uh, yeah, I'm a little south of Portland, a little north of uh, Salem. Because my, my understanding is that Portland is now um, uh, God's gift to a range of all kinds of food. Um, so you should be just rolling in it. Yeah, they, they definitely have uh, certain city blocks that are just buses parked in squares that serve everything on the under the sun, um, which has been good. I've tried a lot of interesting things I never would have otherwise tried, 
Um, I just well, you and I, I, you and I are going to talk after this podcast because um, in my next book, I'm I'm looking at featuring the Portland food scene. So yeah, sure. we'll talk, we'll schmooze, we'll have a baby. <laughs> I think a big, big food, I know uh, style that is popular across the U.S. and I generally love it uh, is pizza. Mm-hmm. Um, what is there kind of like a, a most popular across the area pizza? Well, it, it, look, it, regional styles of pizza um, are uh, a key part of the business. Um, occasionally they go national. I mean, Detroit style pizza has been having a moment for the past couple of years. But generally speaking, the most popular pizza is cheese pizza. You know, and and then you've got people trying to rank them. You can't rank them. You got uh, the most popular. You've got pepperoni. You you've got margarita. You got barbecue chicken pizza, probably veggie pizza. Incredibly, Hawaiian pizza is up there, but uh, it's more. You know, you eat the kind of pizza that is um, your favorite. Well. You either eat bland, inedible chain pizza made with sauce full of sugar, the the key ingredient or the key attribute being that they deliver it to your house with garlic knots, or you eat the pizza that is popular in your part of the country. In New York, it's obviously New York pizza. It's a um, relatively thin, but not cracker thin crust. You've got Detroit pizza. You got um, St. Louis pizza, which is made with Provel processed cheese, because that's what they started doing years ago. It, it uh, Chicago, you know, people think um, deep dish is Chicago's contribution to the world. Chicago also has a style of bar pizza that is just thin, crisp crust. It's fantastic. Um, there's there's pizza for everybody. It's a perfect example of a food that evolved after arriving here. And one of the things that happened to it was um, pizza was eaten uh, in Naples by the poorest of the poor because it was the cheapest food stuff available. I mean, basically, you, you needed flour and tomatoes. Um, and if you had a few bucks, maybe you could put a piece of lard on top. Uh, the immigrants from Southern Italy who arrived in the United States were shocked to find that even the poor in New York could afford stuff like meat. So you ended up with, you know, the, the caricature of these, um, overabundant plates of Italian food that are served at red sauce restaurants. But the fact is that grew out of the astonishing, um, uh, reality that that you could put meat in a tomato sauce. I mean, that didn't exist in in Italy. Um, I live in New Jersey, where uh, Sunday sauce is absolutely chock full of um, pork, veal, beef. It's you got to have it in there. So th there was a whole um, renaissance in in the making of uh dishes that were inspired by what had been eaten in italy 
And the same thing happened to pizza. I mean, ingredient after ingredient after ingredient. You see people, you know, they've got some of the pizzas that, that are advertised, even from the chains. The meat lover's extravaganza with this and that. You put a car on top and we'll stuff the crust. Um, enough. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is definitely uh, popular among... Uh the the area that i'm in which is either a very thin pizza or it has been stuffed so much i'm not sure the inside is fully cooked uh that's a problem that's a problem yeah uh now the most divisive question i think you Mm -hmm. get about pizza which is where have you had the best for you pizza uh the star tavern in east orange new jersey which makes a hell of a bar pie well there you go yeah and it's New Jersey, so that's a very high standard. Now, I, I you know, um, it's one of many types of pizza that that I've come to love. There, there is a kind of pizza called Old Forge pizza that is primarily produced in Old Forge, Pennsylvania, which was an old coal mining town. It's a small town. It declared itself not that long. Ago, well, I guess. I guess long ago, to be the pizza capital of America, because years ago, um, a uh, restaurant owner there invented uh, Old Fork style pizza, which is a uh, rectangular pan, uh, kind of a spongy, soft dough on it. It's kind of light, um, topped with uh, cheese and, and sauce on top of it or done in a white version where there's no sauce on top of it and the cheese is in the middle. And um, that's both of those are incredible. They're just astonishing. Um, I was talking to the owner of one of those, the pizzerias in Old Forge, and, and he kindly sent me one of each. And they're amazing. Uh, I, was, I didn't want to call him back and sponge another couple of pizzas off him. So I went to Gold Belly and bought them, and you know how Gold Belly charges. So I like kind of had to trade in my car and mortgage my house, but it was very good. Sounds very good. Oh, it's <laughs> phenomenal. The the white one especially. I think there's some spicing in there. It might even be caraway. It's just it's incredible. Oh yeah, I am now salivating enough. I don't have to drink water. <laughs> there you go. But uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, so having, we've all just lived through a year and a half worth of COVID, um, has it affected the small business industry yeah, enough? It's been horrible. Yeah. It, it's, it's knocked a whole bunch of mom and pop restaurants out of business. Look, that's, that's a... It's a thin margin business to start with, and this has just ravaged the uh, the small restaurant industry. Um, you know, if you're Chili's, you can survive, but if if you've got one restaurant in a small town and no one's coming to it, it's over. Uh, it's a, it's a shame. It's a damn shame. Yeah, it definitely. I, I've seen way too many that uh, I enjoy closed down, is it going to be so large scale that it changes the food landscape forever? Well, the thing that's changing the food landscape forever, because look, most 
meals are not consumed at mom and pop restaurants. The thing that's changing in the landscape is a predicted uh, downturn in the number of people who want to go into a restaurant anymore. Um, even restaurants that never did any kind of takeout business are adding drive-ins and uh, drive-throughs. And the uh, percentage of meals uh, eaten off-site is uh, is going to stay higher than it was. Not not as high as at the peak of the pandemic, although, you know, <laughs> there was a belief that we had gotten through it for the restaurant business, and now things are bad again. Uh, but yeah, there's 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 simply put, going to be fewer people sitting at tables in restaurants going forward. It's definitely unfortunate. It's a shame. And think of all the people who've who've lost jobs. Yeah. Um. And, and by the way, another another trend that the pandemic has um has helped is what's called a ghost kitchen, which is a restaurant that has no bricks and mortar to eat in. That is simply a virtual brand that exists only for delivery. Um. You can run five restaurants out of one kitchen that way. So uh, it is economical um for the owner but it sure as heck doesn't help anyone who wants to work front of the house or wait tables yeah it definitely eliminates the uh the service part of that industry other than the delivery if yeah which driving it somewhere. may be done by a third party anyway yeah that's that's very true oh boy that is a bummer um Anyway, uh, I have immensely appreciated your time. I know I've kept you here almost an hour. Not a problem. Always a pleasure. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, if people want to reach out and find find your book or find you, uh, where could they look? Well, uh, Food Americana has a Facebook page. Food Americana has an Instagram page. And you can buy Food Americana at uh, Amazon. Uh, barnesandnoble.com, uh, target.com, walmart.com, uh, jump online and pick up a couple of copies. Yeah, there you go. All righty. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please reach out, tell family, coworkers, friends, anything, uh, to listen to it. I would greatly appreciate any support you can give us. If you've really enjoyed it, you could go on to Apple Podcast or Stitcher or Spotify or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Just leave a good review. Um, maybe if it's really funny, I'll read it on the show. I enjoy good humor. Um, or if you have a good dumb example, I'll, maybe I'll read that too. Uh, otherwise, if you want to reach out to us, I'm on social media, Dumb Enough Podcast pretty much everywhere. Or you could reach out at dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for guests or questions for guests or just want to chat, reach out to me there. I'll get a hold of you. All right. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.